Welcome to World Wide Waste, a podcast about how digital is killing the planet and what to do about it. Is technology a good thing? That was my first question for Dr. Sharon Richardson, who is a senior scientist and lecturer in geocomputation at the University of Zurich, where she applies data-intensive methods to improve understanding of and assist in human societal and environmental challenges. Sharon also has a keen interest in exploring the potential and limits of AI in real-world decisions. Yeah, it's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because I think there's a statistic, and this could be completely wrong, you know, I'd need to check it afterwards. But, you know, if we want to revert back to, say, hunter-gatherer era, then we can only sustain around about, is it a quarter of a million people on the planet? Um in that lifestyle, you know, technology has enabled us to grow as a population. And we, is, that's a, an interesting debate to be had. Is that a good thing or not? You know, because generally, well, I'm here um, and I wouldn't be if we'd said no to that. So I think technology ultimately is is a good thing. Um, it's enabled us to, to get to the billions, which we otherwise would not be possible on this planet. And the frustration is, is that used well, there shouldn't be the massive downsides that we're currently seeing. Uh, so it's not, we can't just, it's a little bit like the example of electricity. You know, you can use electricity to make toast or to kill people. Uh, you know, it's just, do we then say, oh, well, electricity is too dangerous. We should never have invented it. And of course, that would not be particularly sensible. Um, so it's how we end up using these things. There's a great book I read a few years ago now, Physics for Future Presidents, and it talked through kinds of scenarios relating to physics that a future president should think about. So there's nuclear, climate, all the different scenarios. But there was a statistic in it. And again, I, I let's come back off the top of my head so I can look it up afterwards to confirm it. But it it went through the fact that every decade going forward, the actual energy savings on technology were enabling us to do more. And that if we continued the progress of the last 100 years, by the end of this century, the planet could support a population of 9 to 11 billion, all living at the European standard of living, if we followed that progressive track. And one of the examples given was quite a simple one, which was, if we still all use the types of refrigerator that were around in the 1970s, I think in America alone, it would require something like an additional 50 gigawatt power plants to run the refrigerators if they were still using 1970s technology refrigerators instead of the modern ones, which are much, much more efficient. And so there were these scenarios where you thought, wow, that, that makes sense. I suppose what we didn't envisage is technology generating a new form of demand that in itself is creating a huge energy demand. But even if all the data centers become, say, completely carbon neutral, which you know the big tech platforms are all claiming they will, it's all the people then using those data centers as well. I mean, how many more TikTok videos do we need? You know, how many can be classed as, say, art versus waste? Because there's an energy cost every single one that we upload. I find it hard to understand the data centers, you know, saying that they're going to be carbon neutral because are they not counting the data servers themselves, which each of which create at least a ton of CO2 to be manufactured? You know, I find a lot of these accounting things, how the, how these entities are accounting for being neutral 
as being strange, uh, that they kind of don't account for the actual devices. They just talk about their renewable electricity. But, but most of the waste is actually in the device itself. It's in the server or the computer or the smartphone that is connected to these data centers. So it's it's a kind of a a strange accounting model they have when they talk about being carbon neutral. Absolutely. You know, what happens, for example, if one of the large enterprise players, you know, their next big client says, well, you know, we're going to spend X million a year, uh, you know, hosting things on your data center, but we're not pursuing that carbon neutrality, you know, and we're going to be using these things, these equipment that will cause a massive carbon cost. Would the platform say, well, we're not going to have you as a customer? Um, That would be an interesting dilemma to to see play out. When I was researching my my book, Worldwide Waste, one of the stats that I kept coming across in the kind of different variations was that 90% of data uh, is not used either three months after it's created or it's never used to begin with. That that we have, you know, these engines of producing data, and that in the vast majority of situations we we really it's not good. Quite like a huge amount of it is just of no value to begin with, uh, so it never gets used. And then some of it that may well be useful. Um, well, we still don't have great capacity to use it. But this sense of, you know, that our capacity to create data vastly outpaces our capacity uh, to use it. I, uh, what would your experience be in, in that? I think you could use a simple example that most people can relate to is that it doesn't happen so much these days, although some people still do, but there used to be a phase where you would create a careful set of subfolders in your inbox to file away your emails should you ever need to read them again. And I would challenge how many people ever so much as looked inside one of those folders ever again. You know, how many times did anyone go back over an old email from six months ago, let alone a year ago? I would wager very, very few people. And so, yes, this is a, a huge challenge is that much of the data being generated has minimal value, but it's knowing which bits are going to get used. That's the uh, that's the challenge. I don't know off the top of my head what the solution is as to whether or not, you know, how do you create some kind of tax or cost to make people more careful about what data does get captured and stored because of its cost? compared to its potential value. That's a really interesting concept. I've been thinking as well about that we will need at some stage um, a data uh, tax in some way because there's such an explosion of of data. I was talking to a physicist who was saying that there's a theory, not everyone agrees with it and it's not been totally proven, but that actually data has a weight, a physical weight. It's It's a a microscopic weight, but that it has a weight independent of of the weight of the hard disk or whatever that it's stored on. And that this physicist estimates that within maybe three, five or 600 years, depending on the growth of data, that it'll, this weight will become really evident and will become, you know, very significant in the Earth's mass in because we are creating such unbelievable volumes of data and he was saying we ain't seen nothing yet with internet of things it's 
is going to is going to explode in in exponential value so that you know at some stage quite soon data will really begin to stress organizations and you know and stress societies in in the massive volumes that it's it's being created is that something you see coming or or do you think those those fears are unnecessary or or, or what 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 do you think I think it's fascinating when he's proposing that there's some kind of additional actual weight to information beyond, you know, because we often talk about it where you can say it, there is, it's, it's expressed in physical form the minute you print it out on a piece of paper or even arguably if it's visible on a computer screen. And certainly when it's stored on a hard drive, there's, there's, a, there's a physical artifact now involved. Um, you know, and we've both been around the digital for a similar period of time, you know, we've been through that process of, working with organizations transitioning from paper to digital, where one of the big arguments is the sheer reduction of physical storage space required uh, is a significant cost saving. So to then say, well, things keep getting smaller and smaller. So you can argue going dropping from paper down to digital was a massive reduction. But yes, if that digital then keeps exploding, will it then eventually fill the same amount of space, but with, you know, realms more information than was possible with the physical in paper form see i i had this image that a lot of ai we train it in mcdonald's you know we train it with very poor quality data but not alone it's not it's almost like the dump yard in mcdonald's it's like it's like the it's like the uh, the bins we feed if we're feeding a lot of low level data that we don't know because we didn't clean up the data lake or, you know, there's some, and, and we don't know a lot of times whether it's good or bad, but we're just feeding these massive quantities of data to AI. Isn't there a danger that, that we, that AI, you know, because there is this a kind of independent, oftentimes we're not quite sure exactly what's happening in these machines or exactly how it's interpreting, but that if we feed AI junk, we get a kind of a, a junk AI in the sense or a kind of a hungry AI or a, a type of AI models that actually demand huge quantities of data going forward as well. We don't kind of make them clean living AI. And this may sound like crazy talk, you know, in the sense of, you know, that they're not designed to, to live off as little data as possible. They're designed to demand as much data as possible, and that creates energy inefficient designs. Yeah, this is where um, I actually think we will have a breakthrough where our design of AI changes fundamentally in the not too distant future. You know, I think the most advanced AIs we've reached to at the moment are ones that use deep learning and deep reinforcement learning. And they are, they're either fed massive amounts of data or they run massive amounts of simulations as they learn scenarios from what are often quite simple rules to begin with into that become quite complex scenarios. And we've seen that with the various incarnations of alphas um, that Google's produced. But at the moment, the general approach has been, you know, more data is better. So feed it, you know. It's like if you're learning or training a computer vision algorithm, feed it as many images as you can give it, um, and it'll ultimately outperform a human, which has been proven. You know, I think it was 2014 when a computer vision algorithm f- first outperformed humans at object detection in images. But 
we're still or sort of simultaneously as we're developing on the computer science front, there's we're learning more and more about how the brain works too. And the current incarnations of, of algorithms are very much based around neural networks. I think that's no surprise to anybody. But we are starting to have other breakthroughs in terms of, well, how do we process information? Because, you know, if I ask you a question you're, I and you answer it, I doubt you'll have a conscious awareness that you went and trained a classifier on your vast memory bank of previous experiences of raw data. And then from that classifier came up with a prediction. Uh, instead, you quickly sort of grasped the abstract concepts that you just know, that you've learned through life, and then probably blended that with your most recent experiences. And I think that may be the kinds of breakthroughs we'll see going forward where an AI might have its initial training on quite a large data set, but I don't think it will it will keep training on new data, but smaller data. And I think it will, will develop better parameters and algorithms that start to have abstract concepts rather than requiring a huge amount of raw data each time to make a change. I mean, it's a given example. It's um, some of the, the DeepMind breakthroughs they had with playing computer games. I think it was the catch the flag scenario where your computer performed brilliantly, but then if you make one change to the game, change a rule or change a structure, you've got to go right way back to the start and retrain the classifier all over again, whereas a human will just sort of go, yeah, okay, I can, I can kind of envisage what that impact that change is going to have and adapt. At the moment, our AOs don't adapt very well, and I think that's the breakthrough we'll have where we'll see a fundamentally different approach to the amount of data. So I think it'll become much less greedy but much more contextual. So what's the current data in this scenario, as opposed to some archive that reflects some past that may or may not be appropriate to learn from? Well, that would be, that would be a major um, improvement. Uh, Sharon, do you see in conversations that awareness among AI researchers that they are... <laughs> gluttonous for energy, like that, that, that their systems in a climate crisis are incredibly, you know, they're like massive gas guzzling hummers, you know, and that uh, that this is not exactly scientific models that we should be and approaches developing when, you know, we are worried that there may be not be a planet that is livable for our children and their grandchildren. Is is the AI community aware that its habits are and that its 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 current scientific practices are 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 more like the oil industry than you know than than, than a sustainable industry? Yeah, I don't think that phrase data is the new oil helps on that front whatsoever. Um, I think there are people within the community that are aware of it and concerned. But I think I think there's a lot of different aspects that are raising concerns at the moment, because obviously ethics is a very, very big concern at the moment. You know, there's much more awareness now of the bias in AI algorithms and the, the reality that an awful lot of them are merely reflecting the cultural biases that have existed in society for years, decades, even centuries. And we're seeing that reflected back at us when we build a machine off that, that archive data set. So there's a huge community now really looking at AI ethics and should we have some kind of equivalent of the medical Hippocratic Oath, you know, when, when building a new AI, should there be constraints? or Because at the moment there are none. 
um, I was writing an article recently, and I don't know if you remember back into sort of around about 2000, 2001, there was the Enron scandal, um, which brought down both Enron and their auditors at the time for being fraudulent. And it led to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act um, to try and prevent it from happening again. We haven't got anything yet like that to constrain AI, despite the numerous examples of abuses that we're seeing uh, within the criminal sector, for example, within benefits. We saw it with the A-level algorithms fiasco last year and the untold mental health issues that may have caused for some poor students who were completely unfairly judged by an algorithm that was known to have insufficient data to produce a reliable result. At the moment, there there are no checks and balances. There's no cause for redress. Um, There's a whole host of areas of AI that needs tackling at the moment. Yeah, and you you just reminded me there, it it wasn't AI, but the post office scandal. Yeah, that's another one. Absolutely. It's perhaps even worse because it's so simple and distressing. But the fact that there was a fault in the software, so it was misreporting. And despite numerous people having no prior history of any criminal activity, being considered upstanding citizens, it didn't matter. It's like, well, the computer says no. Uh, the computer says this, and we're going to trust the computer more than no character references, testimonials. And they had no course for address, and it's taken years to now realise that they were all innocent. And some people have died. You know, some have been ostracised from their communities. There have been divorces. It's, it's horrific that, there, that it's taken this long to finally acknowledge that it was a fault in the computer system. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and I think, you know, we seem to have this inbuilt, you know, part of our DNA to look for new gods, you know, that and and it feels in many ways like technology is the new god at the moment. Is the is is the, is the hip Jesus, you know, that you know the computer says, you know the you know, and and therefore it must be right in in the process that. You know, we we just externalize this sense of there's this higher thing that has the understanding uh, and that we must follow it. Uh, and yet, you know, as you say, you know, it's, it's just a, a malfunctioning computer program. Um, and that's just at, a, at such a bit. That's not a wasn't an AI system. But when you consider you know, the levels, I, I remember early ones, of, and particularly, yeah, minorities and particularly gender. And I saw early AI systems that recommended that women were just having a panic attack, but that men were having a heart attack because, you know, there was a hundred years of data of male chauvinist doctors misdiagnosing women when they'd come in to visit them, saying, ah, oh, you're just panicking, there's nothing. You know, uh, and that that was the records of misdiagnosis that was fed to the AI and the AI just became a male chauvinist pig because that was the data. Well, I think the um, the Microsoft Tay bot experiment is the current favorite one to bring up to demonstrate that, you know, an AI will typically just reflect society back at us and we might not like what we see. Um, because I, you must remember that when Microsoft released the chatbot onto Twitter and it started off being very friendly and I think it was, it was hours it turned into a foul-mouthed 
abusist, sexist, racist, homophobic, you name it. If it could insult someone, it would. So absolutely. Um, I think we're a little bit in a thrall of data sometimes. And I say that as somebody who works with data all the time. And I'm, I, you know, when somebody gives me an opinion, I am prone to say, show me the data uh, on that because, you know, opinions are easily formed sometimes on the scantest of evidence. But that said, you know, my favorite phrase at the moment is this idea that an over-reliance on data can produce just as flawed a decision as an over-reliance on beliefs. You know, it's the real world is messy. Um, it's, you know, we, we're, we've created an artificial environment from ourselves. The minute we started building things, uh, human nature and our social organizations, they're messy, ambiguous, sometimes chaotic environments and at the moment we're expecting clean precise answers from AI that's not really fitting with reality and so it can be just as wrong as asking somebody to have a you know based on their belief what do they think happened and how do we you know solve that because you know yeah I, I've been spent years you know in web design and all oh database decision making and let's you know let's judge how this page works based on A-B testing. And I thought that was the holy grail, like, you know, and and that, you know, um, and as you say, it's it, it's a lot more messy. And one, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in, you know, being in, involved since the mid-90s in designing really big websites, like I've worked for Microsoft a lot and a lot of technology companies and uh, over the years and building really big websites is that, the skills, what are sometimes called information architecture, are actually in decline. That less people are skilled at, and there's less interested interest in in organizing information and coming up with classifications and structures than, the, in my experience, any than there ever has been. Uh, and part of the reason is, oh, Google will sort that. Why do I need a, a set of folders? I'll just I'll just search for it or whatever. So. As data explodes, the actual essential skills to structure and organize it are actually in decline. Am I am I crazy, or is are you seeing the opposite of that? Or, or but that's what I'm seeing: information architecture skills in decline during a period when they have never been more needed. Uh, no, I'm not going to disagree with you there. There's an I'd add to it as well. I think data presentation is woefully under-researched and underappreciated at the moment too. You know, we're presenting outcomes from increasingly complex algorithms, and the standard criticism for somebody who perhaps doesn't understand what's coming out from the algorithm is, oh well, we need to improve data literacy. You know, we need to improve digital skills in people. And I don't disagree. That's something that you know will be beneficial for everyone. But there's also a responsibility on those designing the systems that their systems are understandable. I think we need a massive investment in human computer interaction and user interface design too. Uh, you know, as, as we start to have medical apps on our phones, uh, there was an example actually given by Professor Yvonne Rogers of University College London at a talk just last month. And she, said, she was talking about this exact challenge, saying, well, what if you've got an app that can you take a picture of your skin and then it diagnoses a mole and it says it's cancerous you know what should it tell you should it just say we think it's cancerous contact a doctor should it tell you well 
it's 20% likely or we think it's 80% likely it's cancerous. You know, does, does these differences matter to the person? There's been very little said about how the results are presented from these algorithms. And I think if you look a lot of the headline cases that we've seen, such as the poor use of AI, well, there's simpler than an AI really, but the use of the compass algorithm in the American criminal justice system, where it was simply your colour would determine whether or not you were likely to commit further crime. I mean, it was just a shocking failure. But that's partly because the information was presented poorly. Nobody thought about how do we present the results of what is a complex series of steps that then gets to this one number what does that one number be? And should it actually be one number? Or should it actually be a series of a criteria with some kind of explanation? Now, I work a lot with spatial analysis now and maps. And again, I saw a great talk once um, by, I think it's Albert Cairo, who does a lot of work in map visualisation, saying, well, maybe we should make the maps harder to read. Maybe we should require people to work a little bit so they don't just jump to a quick conclusion they need to dig a little bit deeper into the visualisation. So I think data presentation, as well as its organisation, they're skills that we desperately need more of as we rely more and more on these systems. It's a great point that Professor said, sometimes you need to make things harder. You know, uh, like, uh, you know, is it always good, you know, uh, to, you know, to make it easy to, to buy so much stuff or to buy... You know, there's a huge problem in e-commerce about e-commerce returns that, you know, so it's very easy to buy loads of clothes, but it's not easy to know, are they going to fit you or, or, you know, or or should you buy and, and should you get them delivered, you know, in 24 hours, you know, or in in three days, you know, but three days would probably be better for the planet because it's a more sustainable delivery medium. So all these, you know, making it easy for you to get convenience and quick, you know, sometimes you do need to make it hard or at least make people think uh, more. So these are big design challenges as well. And, And yes, a lot of times we don't really delve into them enough no absolutely um uh, a book that was quite popular i think because he's been very vocal on covid too um i think it's called the art of statistics but it's by david um spielholter uh who studies risk uh, at cambridge i think and he talks about the fact that you know because people are becoming much more aware of bayesian inference and its role in decisions and and i'm very much in favor of Bayesian modelling over frequentist statistics because it effectively enables you to update your beliefs. It it tries to bring in this combination of having both data and beliefs and how do we resolve them. But it's quite fascinating in his book, the fact that this approach isn't allowed in court because it's considered to have some sort of ambiguity and that's not a good thing. We want clarity. We want a clear decision. And so maybe we just, as you know, as a species, we need to embrace ambiguity a bit more, I think. We need to find ways to understand there isn't one single answer um, in so many different scenarios and to be better at understanding the different trade-offs or the different consequences uh, that each possible outcome is going to produce and accept that we're going to pick one of them 
but we're going to pick one knowing that it's not it might be optimal in some ways but it's going to be suboptimal in other ways and we need to have thought about what that means and that can you know then cover so many different scenarios including the concerns around ethics bias climate costs and so forth at the moment i don't think we we do that we just look at one possible outcome i was uh, in touch with uh, uh, some uh, dutch uh, researchers who were researching um self-driving cars and um they're going over their numbers again and again because they can't believe them uh but the the current numbers that they've ca- they have and they've cross-checked them multiple times at this stage are showing that if the dutch fleet you know uh, uh transferred over right now or within the next couple of years to self-driving cars, so the entire is is so is not physically possible, but let's say it was possible, and that in the way that each of these cars uh, that are throwing off, you know, these current models are throwing off like a a couple of gigabyte a second of data. They're saying that basically it would demand like ten, twenty, thirty times the total electricity supply of of the Netherlands to run that fleet. That. You know the, the, that the solution, some of the solutions to save the planet, so to speak, because self-driving cars are saying, "Oh, we're going to drive more efficiently, and there'll be less crashes, and there'll be there'll be better um, uh, consumption of electricity, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But the actual data required to keep them on the road and all the infrastructure around that data is vastly greater than any efficiencies gained in driving more efficiently. So some of the solutions I'm seeing coming out of of the technological uh, space are more likely to kill the planet before it saves the planet. But what what sort of ones might help us, say, to walk more or get on the bicycle more? Because I think we don't need self-driving cars. We need more bicycles. We need more 15-minute cities, like in Paris, what what they're trying to do. How can data help, you know, in those areas where we can really get the win-win of, you know, healthy people bicycling and data helping them to bicycle more rather than, you know, these other areas, which I'm increasingly seeing are not necessarily going to help at all. Uh, They may be wonderful technical solutions, but they may create far more pollution as a side effect than the solution that they actually create. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> to answer. I, I mean, this is, the thing with autonomous vehicles is, in particular, I think, is it's a little bit like the flying cars of the 1950s, and we still haven't got those. Um, I think a lot of people are dialing back on their predictions as to when we'll have such things on the roads because of so many different complexities and the energy cost of running them being one off so it's um it's, it's a big topic in its own right to answer that one because a lot of it's going to ultimately come down to leadership visions you know what kind of world do we want to see in the future you know we're seeing a huge pushback against globalization at the moment um what's that going to mean you know we could head off into some very very big topics here um, possibly beyond the realms that either of us can answer. So, you know, it is ultimately going to come down 
to some tough decisions are going to get made. I mean, in my research of cities, when I, I did a smart cities master's a few years ago now, which led into the PhD, and overwhelmingly the best cities were the small ones. Time everywhere, you know, it wasn't the big metropolis. It was it was generally the smaller ones, so like in the UK, just like Edinburgh, Winchester, anywhere with a cathedral that's quite small but still gets city status. Um, and the same in America, you know, so areas in the cities in Silicon Valley compared to to the huge metropolis they're generally people are happier healthier and that works but we're back to a scaling problem in terms of population size as well the general assumption has been based on the numbers is we need the big cities to to cope with the big populations you know i i had a stat on my blog a few years ago and i haven't checked whether how much it's changed but it's still the fact that you know we now know over half the population lives in cities and over half of that population lives in slums and frankly, they are not concerned about electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles or AI or anything. They're surviving. Um, so, you know, this is where it becomes a challenge. Which challenge are we trying to solve here? So I will be very interested to see when that study comes through. There's a lot of research getting specifically into vehicles. You know, what will be the impact if we did have autonomous vehicles? Because it's not just the cost of the data generation and running them, but there's the other models show that they would produce more trips, not less or fewer. Sorry, using the correct terminology. Uh, there's, you know, there's an argument around at the moment, 40 percent of land space in cities in America, at least, I think, is car parks. Um, so would it suddenly release lots and lots of land for, for redevelopment? And then it's like, well, actually, no, we'd end up with more of these. So unless we get the smart car parking where we can sink them under the ground or have skyscraper car parks and what have you then we've got to put them somewhere so there's there's so so many different challenges that we're a long long way off solving um just getting to the point where we've got one of them working on the roads without killing people is a, a good start point yeah and you know the the, the, the um, what do you think of the idea you know the maybe the best of both worlds the what Paris is really trying to drive the 15 minute city in a kind of like multiple cities in a city, you know, that everything is, you know, within 15 minutes walk that that uh, or 15 minute cycle or stuff in in the process is that. And I wonder how, you know, data could help that type of, you know, is it uh, a ways of of of, you know, the, that that that. Uh, the green grocer or the, you know, I think some people are looking at the return of the milk man or woman, so to speak, in the process, but in a different concept that that there's a, a local provider with cargo bikes, but a kind of bringing all sorts of materials, you know, vegetables and stuff like on a constant, a kind of system or in a very localized area. Uh, and that would probably require quite a bit of coordination, so to speak, in a, in an app or you know getting everything freshly around a, an area i wonder is there is there ways where we could have small data rather than big data or you know that that cuz data is still so i mean it's how we have become you know if we do it right it 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 makes things work so much better but you know maybe it's small data in 15 minute cities ideas you know, around helping people to walk more, you know, or cycle more or cargo bikes rather than self-driving cars. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm quite a fan of the 50 minute city concept to start getting thinking because it's it's taking more of a design thinking approach to cities too, which well that's always been there, but throughout the 20th century, obviously the car has dominated an awful lot of the approaches taken. So you saw a real shift to zoning where you've got your suburbs where everyone lives and then you've got your central business district and you've got a big retail centre district outside, the, you know, on the outskirts of towns and so forth. Everything involved requiring a car. And so in terms of, there's another vision that's starting to grow in popularity, the 20-minute neighbourhood too, which is of a similar ilk, you know, which is the, do we get back to this? It's actually just going back to how things used to be happening you know if you look at how London grew organically it's actually a collection of villages that just joined up over time and you still see that in the naming conventions and the different high streets in different pockets of London so London as a city is quite a good example of lots of villages joining up into one giant city as opposed to the sort of the sort of huge design from day one city where it is just a massive grid-based metropolis so, yeah, I mean, data will become essential to those sorts of scenarios because we're looking at potentially much more hyper-local distributed systems. You know, there's a big push for should we see more urban farming in these scenarios um, because farming and agriculture is causing a huge impact on the environment and the sustainability, you know, the ability of the planet to sustain us at least. So if you're going to have much more urban farming, it's lo local, but it's got to be distributed very, very quickly to avoid waste. So absolutely, there's going to be a role for data in those types of scenarios. But it is going to require much more of a sort of holistic systems thinking approach to connect all these ideas together into the kind of future life we want to see. I saw a fascinating study there a number of years ago in China um, where they increased uh, crop production by something like five or seven percent, which is very substantial, like over a 20 year period. And they did it uh, with practically no new technology, but basically creating big networks uh, of farmers and policymakers. And so they, they, they'd say, oh, we planted it. They, they started multiple experiments of crop rotation, planting seed depth etc etc and they just tested different soils and different planting etc but they fed all the information around to government people to local farmers etc using the web essentially so it was no they didn't buy any new tractors or stuff but the sharing of the data and what was working and what was not working really reduced um reduced um, pesticides, reduced fertilizer, and increased um, uh, crop production. And I think, you know, in the cities, you know, some will have growing in undergrounds and infrared, etc. I think the sharing of what's working, what's growing, what's not growing, you know, with 10,000 farmers, you know, feeding into a central database, here's what I did today and here's how it grew, we can learn from each other. We don't need, you know, this is where I think data is so exciting, isn't it? You know, that that can really help better crops, cleaner developed, more locally delivered just in time. So this is where data could really help the planet. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we and, you know, we've done well not to mention COVID really and get this far through the conversation, but COVID and SARS before it are good examples too with having computational power and data 
enabling scientists to work, you know, globally to come up with solutions that previously took us decades or at least years or, you know, to bring that cycle down from decades to years, years to months, months to days, days even to hours. This is some of the possibilities that we see now where it's it's phenomenally good thing to have access to the data. One thing that unfortunately didn't happen is that very early on, certainly in Asia, uh, the scientific consensus was that COVID was airborne. And yet the Western societies in particular were very, very slow to accept that data that, you know, which had a, a massive impact on the spread of the virus, you know, versus the conventional wisdom that wash your hands and it's it's going to be spread through surfaces. Yet the data was there very early that it was airborne. And yet we weren't able to, as organizations or societies or medical establishments, accept that data. Yeah, I think this was one of the interesting examples, again, with, with coming back to what we were talking about earlier with data and beliefs sort of having a bit of friction. Um, because if I understand correctly, and again, I could be wrong here, uh, a lot of the early modeling was the belief that it would behave like flu. And so it was modeled like flu. And so hence the, the focus was very much more on droplet spread and fomites off surfaces, which is expect the, the general consensus of how flu spreads. And I think there was such a strong belief on that model that it almost override seeing what the data was telling them at the time, you know, and because we've seen these sorts of examples before where if if what you, you know, if you've got a certain strong belief that, well, this is the way things are, it's very difficult, even when you've got data, to push back on that kind of belief. Yeah, and isn't that the conundrum as well? We need the belief and we need the data because if we just believe in the data, we can make almost worse decisions than if we just believe in belief. Absolutely. This is one of the big, it's back to this idea that we need this. We need these systems of redress, of, of ways of testing, you know, is there, is there something missing here? What's the hidden, what's the data we don't have? You know, it's like that classic example where everyone goes back to the uh, figuring out what was causing the weaknesses in planes returning from World War II. And it's don't look at where the bullet holes are, look at where the bullet holes aren't because they're the planes that didn't come back. And we still struggle with that. There was the great example with DNA. You know, once DNA testing became a thing, it became such a certainty that, well, if, you know, if your DNA showed up in a crime scene, you were there because your DNA is there. So how could you not have been there? And yet there's countless examples now where it's been proven afterwards and often after people have spent some time in prison that there was cross-contamination. And that they never. And there was the one example of a, a gentleman who had an absolute cast iron alibi. He was in hospital, um, but his DNA was detected at a crime scene. And he spent six months in prison before they finally got to the bottom of it, which was he was transported in the same ambulance. And somehow some part of his DNA ended up under the fingernails of the victim at the crime scene. So it transferred by the paramedic that collected the samples. Um, you wouldn't think that was possible. But it happened, and but it took six months, despite the fact this man had an alibi with ample witnesses because he was in a hospital at the time of the crime, and yet he was still arrested because he failed the DNA test. Such was the belief in the absoluteness, accuracy of the DNA testing um, that they didn't think about potential for contamination. And I think this is 
this is where our decision maturity needs to improve. You know, we need to be able to stop ourselves and say, okay, we've got a strong belief and we've got quite a bank of evidence here, but we've got some data here or we've got, we've got a blind spot and we're not addressing it. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.